Our Father, as we open your word, we would ask that you would reveal yourself to us, our Savior, and by the work of the Holy Spirit, that we might believe these things deeper and more committed in waiting and hastening the coming of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Maybe may be seated. Please open God's word with me to Revelation 21. We will read the first eight verses of chapter 21 and the first five verses of chapter 22. It's very appropriate after celebrating Christmas, the first coming of Jesus Christ, we can close the year reflecting on the second coming of Jesus Christ. And just as it is appropriate, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper tonight, which looks backward and forward. It looks backward to God's remembrance on the work of Christ for us on the cross and his resurrection. So the Lord's Supper points us forward. We do this until he comes. So we're waiting for Christ to establish the new heavens and the new earth, as we read in 2 Peter 3. And John also speaks of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21. And we'll be looking at that tonight. Follow along in the reading of God's word, Revelation 21, the first eight verses. This is God's word. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell or tabernacle with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In Revelation 22 And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Tonight we're looking at this question, what is, what's ahead? What's our eternal home? What is the new heavens and the new earth? We're not told much in scripture. It's probably because we couldn't grasp its joy or its beauty. 
The Bible just refers to our eternal home as glory. Jesus is bringing many sons to glory, Hebrews 2, verse 10. Jonathan Edwards talks about how we couldn't even grasp it if God described it to us. To pretend to describe the excellence, the greatness, or the duration of the happiness of heaven by the most artful composition of words would be but to darken and cloud it, to talk of raptures and ecstasies, Joy in singing is but to set forth very low shadows of the reality. And all we can say by our best rhetoric is really and truly vastly below what is but the bare and naked truth. And if St. Paul, who had seen them, thought it but vain to endeavor to utter it, much less shall we pretend to do it. And the scriptures have gone as high in the descriptions of it as we are able to keep pace with it in our imaginations and conceptions. The scriptures have given us as much as we can understand. But our new home, we can see this much from scripture. We can understand that our eternal home will be similar to the Garden of Eden. And secondly, we understand that our eternal home will be greater than the Garden of Eden. Our eternal home, first of all, is similar to the old Garden of Eden. John, in describing Revelation 21 and 22 of our future home, you notice the parallels to Genesis 1 and the, and the first creation of the first world that we're in now. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And how does Revelation 21.1 begin? I saw a new heaven and a new earth. A new creation parallels this one. In the first Eden, paradise, God calls into being the sun and the moon, and they're mentioned again, Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new creation, but now there's no more need for the sun or the moon, verse 23. The first Eden had rivers that watered Eden, and so too in the new paradise, there's the river of life, 22.1. There's angels in the first Eden, of course, to guard it and prevent unbelievers from ever entering it. Now there's angels at the gates of the new earth, Revelation 21, 12, to keep the gates always open. The first Garden of Eden had one tree of life, which Adam and Eve lost. The new earth, God opens again the way to the tree of life, Revelation 22, There's a parallel. There's a similarity that we're to be thinking that our new home is going to be similar to the Garden of Eden. Anthony Hokema wrote, since where God dwells, there heaven is, we conclude that in the life to come, earth and heaven will no longer be separated as they are now, but but will be merged. Believers will therefore continue to be in heaven as they continue on the new earth. Our eternal home is similar to the Garden of Eden. Let's spend most of our time, though, looking tonight that our eternal home is going to be greater than the Garden of Eden. It's going to be greater in at least these two ways. Greater in the sense that the creation is going to be renewed. And greater in the sense that our communion with God will be restored. It's going to be greater in the sense that creation will be renewed. 
Don't think that when Christ returns and brings judgment upon this world and the universe that this present world is going to be annihilated and go out of existence and be replaced with something completely different other than what we have now. Yes, this world and the cosmos is going to be destroyed by fire, 2 Peter 3.12, and yes, it will pass away in that sense it will be, this will be There will be a difference, Revelation 20, verse 11. As the Belgic Confession says, Christ will return burning this old world with fire and flame to cleanse it, but not to annihilate it. This present world will be destroyed and remodeled. It's going to be new in several ways. It's going to be a new but restored creation after it's been destroyed by fire. And how do we know this? Well, we know this from the parallel to Noah's flood that we read in 2 Peter chapter 3. That flood is also called a destruction. And yes, all unbelievers perished because they did not believe the word of the Lord. And yes, there was great geological changes to the world, the continents, the polar ice caps, the vegetation, the animal life. And yet, the the world after Noah's flood was replaced with the same vegetation and the same animals, even though the world had been destroyed. And so, in Revelation 21, we speak of the new heavens and the new earth. And there we read Revelation 21, 24, the glory and the honor of the nations will contribute to the magnificence of the new earth. All that is good and beautiful in this creation is going to reappear, but purified and perfect as the creator intended for the first Eden. This new creation, this new world is going to be new and restored. We know that from Noah's flood. We also know that because of the promise to creation. Promise to creation in Isaiah 65 and most familiar in Romans 8.21. This creation groans to be released from its bondage to decay, to the joys that it once knew before Adam and Eve brought sin upon this creation. It's not groaning to be waiting to go out of existence. It's groaning to be released from the curse that's on it so that it can be transformed again to the joys that it once knew. It's a renewal of the old creation, not its annihilation. There's, there's going to be a continuity. There's going to be a similarity from this creation. Even though it's destroyed, it will be made new. The creation is groaning and longing for that day when it will be released from bondage to decay. Bovink wrote, the substance of the present world will be preserved and will be restored, purified in glory. But there's another reason we know that the new heavens, the new earth, is going to be very similar but greater. We know that it will be restored because of the analogy and the comparison to Christ's resurrection body. The mortal was glorified and put on immortality in his resurrection, but his resurrected body was the same body that he died on the cross with. It was the same body, not a different body. And so the analogy that we're told, Philippians 3.21, so he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, 
transform, not substitute something completely different than what we know now, but there's going to be a continuity with what we already know in this world that's going to be glorified and new. The new transcends this creation. The consummation, the new earth is not just the Garden of Eden, but it's going to be far greater and restored, even though there is similarities. Just as the resurrection body is, is our present body glorified, so by analogy, this present creation is going to be glorified and restored, not annihilated. Don't think of our future home. The new earth is completely different than this earth. Gaffin writes, redemption restores and perfects creation. The new creation will be new and restored. And secondly, the new creation will be new and sinless. Our new home. Yes, the tree of life was there. But you notice how it's multiplied? Revelation 22, 2. The tree of life in the old Garden of Eden, there was just one. In the new earth, there's a whole park. An entire park, rows of trees of life on each side of the river. And each tree is full of fruit, bearing fruit, not just once a year, every month. And the leaves are for the healing of the nations, all the nations in fulfillment to the promise given to Abraham that through him all the nations would be blessed, the work of Christ. So death is removed, sin is removed, the abundance of life In our new home, the tree of life is there, but greater. And in our new home, the tree of life is going to be secure forever. The Garden of Eden, first Adam, he enjoyed the tree of life there, but his enjoyment of the tree of life was based on what? It was based on his perfect obedience. But he rebelled against God, and he was driven from paradise, and he lost access to the tree of life For us, the tree of life in the new earth is also going to be based on a perfect obedience, but not ours. It's based on the perfect obedience of the second Adam. And because Christ has perfectly obeyed God and all of his requirements, and that righteousness is credited to us, we have the promise that the tree of life that we will have access to in the new earth is going to be guaranteed forever. He's won the tree of life for us because of his perfect obedience. And all who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will enjoy it forever. He grants us to eat, and he will grant us to eat forever out of the tree of life, as it says to the church in Ephesus, Revelation 2.7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Our new home, the new earth, will be new and restored. The new earth will be new and sinless. The new earth will be new and newer. It will always be more new. We don't understand that. Revelation 21.1, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. The Greek there is not new in the sense of newborn, like an infant, young in age, or new in the sense of time or origin as a new beginning. But rather it's kainos, which means new in quality. It's always going to be fresh. It's always going to be rejuvenated. It's always going to be brand new. Can you imagine buying a new car and you think, I wonder how many days this is going to remain new? (laughs) 
You drive it off the lot, it's already lost value. Before you get home, it's already dirty. How many days before it gets its first scratch at the, in the parking lot or loses its, the smell of the new car, unless you buy those air fresheners? <laughs> new car smell. New heaven. New earth. It's not the idea that it's new at first and then it's going to wear down. And it's not even the idea that it's new and it will always stay brand new, like a car that never got old or never got scratched or never lost its new smell. But it's the idea that the new heaven and the new earth is always going to be newer. It's always going to be getting better and improving with age. Perhaps we could say in the new heavens and the new earth, the second law of thermodynamics, that everything goes to entropy and disorder. It's not going to operate anymore. It's going to be the opposite of aging. Everything is going to continually get newer and better. Jonathan Edwards put it in heaven, by length of time, things become more and more youthful. That is more vigorous, active, tender, and beautiful. In heaven, we keep getting smarter and wiser and happier. We keep falling more in love. The unfolding of the story of redemption will have us taking one gasp after another, our joy and amazement ever increasing. Lloyd-Jones wrote, not merely are we restored to where Adam was, we're taken beyond it to the place at which Adam would have arrived had he continued in the state of innocence and obedience. This present world is not going to be annihilated and replaced with something completely different. No, it's going to be a world that's, yes, destroyed and remodeled, but it's going to be a new world that's new and restored. It's going to be a new earth that's going to be new and sinless. It's going to be a new earth that's newer and newer. It's always going to be more new, and that is our eternal home. Revelation 21 opens the new heaven and the new earth. And the new Jerusalem, the presence of God with his people, comes down to this earth. And here God tabernacles with us on the new earth as the fulfillment to the promise to Abraham that he would inherit the land which the New Testament expands to inherit the world. Romans 4.13 Jesus promised believers the meek will inherit the earth, Matthew 5, 5. And we look forward to the restoration of all things, Acts three twenty one. Jesus is now in heaven until the time for restoring all things. That is, this creation. That's what we're waiting for. When he will come and renew and restore this world, this new earth will be our eternal home. If there's any parallels that we can even begin to imagine from this world, I'm looking forward to just enjoying all the aspects of science and arts and botany and physics and astronomy. Maybe you think, well, I can't really sing that well now. But in that new earth, you're going to enjoy all the arts and music and beauty 
without any limitations, any restrictions, and it's going to be new and newer and newer forever. It's not that we're going to be sitting on clouds with harps. As one epitaph in a London cemetery said, Weep not for me, friend, though death us do sever, I'm going to do nothing forever and ever. But it's more like Samuel Albury in his book, Lifted, Experiencing the Resurrection Life, writes, This is our hope. Our future is very much physical. Contrary to the view that most people have of heaven, our ultimate destiny is physical. We'll not be floating around disembodied in the middle of some cloudy vista. We'll have bodies, risen, transformed, glorious bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. He continues, virtually none of my mental imagery of heaven had come from the Bible, but from medieval artists and modern-day cartoonists, clouds and harps and winged babies floating around in nightdresses. In fact, part of the blame lies in calling it heaven to start with. It's the new earth. It will be no less physical than the present earth. God says, I will make all things new, not I will make all new things. The new earth will not be completely unrecognizable. It will still be this world, a renewed version of it, not a replacement for it. Until Christ returns, and we pray that he returns quickly, When believers die, our souls immediately go to Christ with heaven. And what a comfort that is at a funeral of a believer. But the bodies are buried here on earth. Waiting for that last day of resurrection when Christ returns. When Christ returns on that last day with a shout of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, he will raise and glorify our bodies and unite them to our souls. And so believers who die now are in the presence of Christ, but they don't have a body. They're waiting for their resurrected body until the second coming of Christ, as Romans 8.23 says, we are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. I speak, I hear of Well-meaning people speak of the dead in Christ, and you've heard it too. You hear people who are well-meaning, but they speak of those who have died in Christ as now dancing or clapping as if they had bodies. Or people say of a believer who's maybe been very sick in this life after a long illness, and at the funeral people might say things like, well, rejoice that their body's been made new. No, that's bad theology. That's not the scriptures. That's not what the scriptures teach. Our souls are with Christ. And the comfort that that is, there's fullness of joy in the presence of Christ. But our souls now in heaven are without their bodies. They're not yet glorified. Our redemption is not yet complete. We're waiting for the restoration of the body, the resurrection on the last day. The status quo now of believers' souls going to heaven is not what it's going to be forever. We're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. 
Our eternal home is greater than the Garden of Eden. It's going to be greater in these two ways, the the sense that creation is going to be renewed in a far greater way. There's a second way in which our home is going to be greater than the Garden of Eden. And that is that the sense of communion with God will be restored. In the first Garden of Eden, we're not told much of what it was, but it must have been a very precious time that God would come and walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. Can you imagine that? The communion that they had. And they traded it all away in rebellion to God and they lost that. But on that day that Christ comes back as victor, the fullness of what he's accomplished upon the cross will be realized and Satan and all of his kingdom will be thrown into hell forever. Revelation 20 verse 10. Our sin, our shame, our guilt. Yes, they're forgiven now by faith in Christ, but then they're going to be gone forever. We'll enter into eternal life because Christ will be the victor and he will accomplish our redemption. Even the curse on this creation is going to be gone. Revelation 22.3, and all disease, all sickness, all suffering, all death, all vanity of life will be gone. Because sin will be gone, and its judgment will be gone. And therefore, there will be no more tears, Revelation 21.4. And that means everything that causes the tears. No more pain, no more disappointments, no more misunderstandings, no more goodbyes, no more death, no more fights, no more sin, no more fears, no more injustice, no more poverty. Nothing in eternity is ever going to cause us to mourn or grieve. No memories of this earth that would cause pain or sorrow. That's just one reason why I believe believers now in heaven cannot look down on us and see us sinning. (laughs) What grief that would cause. But most of all, the new heavens and the new earth, we read in Revelation 21.3, the new Jerusalem is going to come down to this earth. And God is going to, again, tabernacle with us. It said it's twice. That walking in the garden is going to happen again. And God is going to come and restore that relationship that we lost in the Garden of Eden. And God will be their God, implying that he will be a faithful and loving supplier of all of their needs with unimaginable fullness, all the commitments and promises of God throughout history find the apex of their fulfillment. Porthos, he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Revelation 22.4, and they will see his face. That means that communion is going to be restored that was lost in the garden. Even Moses couldn't see the face of God and live. Israel couldn't see the face of God. There was a curtain separated the Holy of Holies from even the priests. But on that day, it will be the fulfillment of blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. As Adam and Eve walked with with God in that first garden, so in our eternal new earth, God is going to come and dwell here with us. 
and we will enjoy his presence finally and forever. We're to imagine our new home as similar to the old Garden of Eden, but as far greater than the Garden of Eden. Why would the Bible even give us just these hints? I think to assure us that the time is coming when God is going to restore this creation as he intended, without sin, without the curse, without limits of time. We're going to be back to the presence of God that Adam lost in the garden because of his rebellion. C.S. Lewis wrote, If I find myself having a desire which no evidence in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. When I realize that my desire to have a perfect world, perfect relationships, perfect beauty, no more pain, no more loneliness, no more sorrow, when I long to experience the fullness of joy, to be perfectly known and loved, that's a longing for the communion of God in the garden again. And that's what's going to happen in the new heaven and the new earth. And we're told this much because it's to assure us that Christ will have that final victory. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Satan appeared to have the victory in the Garden of Eden. He had the allegiance of sinful Adam and Eve, and he, as they aligned with Satan in rebellion against God. But Christ is going to finish history. And that future glory, when he creates the new heavens and the new earth, is going to again consummate the glory that he has promised to us. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if God is to defeat Satan finally and completely, he must restore everything to its original condition. Can you grasp what's ahead? Can you begin to understand what the new paradise, the new heavens and the new earth is going to be? What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And that new heaven and the new earth is all about Christ and his glory. He's restoring all things for his glory, not primarily for our joy and comfort. But he's restoring all things so that he is shown to be the Alpha and the Omega. It's the final restoration of God's glory begun at the fall, accomplished in the death and resurrection, glorification of Jesus Christ, and it will be accomplished at the return of Jesus Christ and the creating of the new heaven and the new earth. If we don't, if we don't get this, it's all for God's glory, then we'll think of the new earth is all about for me. It's for the glory of Christ. Heaven exists for God, and apart from God, it has no meaning. We must never, not for a moment, think of heaven apart from him. We will be sane and safe and biblical in our studies only if, right at the forefront of our thinking, is this concept. 
heaven is for God and for his glory. Here we are at the beginning of another calendar year. Is this what you long for? Come, Lord Jesus. Is this what you reflect on often? That the best is yet to be. David Moore relates the story of a phone call from elderly Martha to her pastor. And Martha's words were very serious. She asked her pastor to come by that afternoon. So he did, and when they sat down, she told him the news that her doctors had just told her that they had discovered a tumor, and she said, the doctors say that I probably have only six months to live. Pastor Jim spoke. I'm so sorry, but before he could even finish, Martha interrupted him. She said, oh, don't be. The Lord has been so good. I've lived a long life. I'm ready to go, and you know that, but I wanted to talk to you about my funeral. I've been thinking about it, and there's some things I... I know that I want. The two of them talked quietly for a long time. They talked about Martha's favorite hymns and the passages of scripture that had meant much to her throughout the years. Many of the memories that they shared over the five years that Pastor Jim had been pastor at Central Church. And he thought that they had covered just about everything and he rose to leave and Martha paused and she looked at him with a twinkle in her eye and she said, there's one more thing, Pastor. When they bury me, I want my old Bible in one hand and a fork in the other. A fork, said Pastor Jim. He was surprised. Why do you want to be buried with a fork? And she said, I have been thinking all about the church dinners and banquets that I've attended through the years. She explained, I couldn't begin to count them all, but one thing sticks in my mind. And those really nice get-togethers, when the meal was almost finished, a server or maybe a hostess would come by to collect the dirty dishes, and I can hear the words now. Sometimes at the best ones, somebody would lean over my shoulder and whisper, you can keep your fork. Do you know what that meant? Dessert was coming. And it wasn't just a cup of jello or pudding, or even a dish of ice cream. You don't need a fork for that. It meant the good stuff, like chocolate cake or cherry pie. When they told me I could keep my fork, I knew the best was yet to come. And that's exactly what I want people to talk about at my funeral. Oh, they can talk about all the good times we had together. That would be nice. But when they walk by my castic and look at my pretty blue dress, I want them to turn to one another and say, Why the fork? (laughs) And that's when I want you to tell them. I kept the fork because the best is yet to come. What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined. What God has prepared for those who love him. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, thank you for the promises of scripture that we rest in, that the best is yet to come. And thank you for the Lord's Supper, which points us there too. We do this in remembrance of him. And we do this until he comes again. 
We ask that this supper now will be a means of encouragement and grace to your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.